Hey, it's Andy. We've got a great show for you today. Big interview with Miami head coach Manny Diaz. He has made a lot of changes, particularly on the offensive side of the ball, as the Hurricanes try to recover from a disastrous end to the 2019 season. We're also going to talk a little bit more about Mel Tucker's move from Colorado to Michigan State. That story feels like it just keeps on going. Also, I'm going to make a rule suggestion. I watched the first weekend of the XFL, and it inspired me to push for a change in college football because they've got a really good idea going on in the XFL that I think needs to move to the college game. All of that and more on the Andy Staples Show. Staples show. Big episode today. Manny Diaz, the head coach of the Miami Hurricanes, is our big interview. You're going to hear a lot from him about the changes they've made since the end of last season. Remember, last season ended very poorly. They lost to Florida International. They lost to Duke. They lost to Louisiana Tech. They're changing offenses. They have a new quarterback. There's a lot going on at Miami. Before we get into that, though, I do want to extend our condolences to the family of Eric King, the quarterback at Miami. His father, Eric, passed away on Saturday. And I talked to Eric King last year for a story on Eric when Eric was still at Houston. You would not find a more proud dad. Uh, it just it breaks your heart to hear that news. And uh, Eric has tweeted out, you know, he's going to make him proud for the rest of his life. And uh, you love to see a son who loves his father that much, but you just hate that Eric King's not going to get to see the rest of of his kids growing up and uh, it's just it, it's one of those awful awful things that you know, I I hope Derek and his family can find some peace and I hope they're going to be all right because just just a gut punch with that news on Saturday but we'll we'll talk about what his role will be at Miami you'll hear from Manny Diaz about recruiting Derek King and about what he could do for Miami, not just this year, but but in the future, because that's a pretty interesting piece of all of this. Is you know this move to get Derek King to bring Rhett Lashley in to run the offense. If that goes really well, it might only last one year. You know, you get one year of Derek King. If the offense is really good and, and is a good complement to Miami's defense, you may only get one year of, of Rhett Lashley. Because he may be a sought-after head coach if he can make Miami's offense hum after years of Miami not being very good on offense. So really intriguing place in Coral Gables right now because there's a lot going on and it seems like they have the pieces in place to do something a little different than they've done before. You'll hear from Manny Diaz about that a little later, but first got to talk about this Michigan State Mel Tucker move from Colorado. This story just keeps going and it's just, it's a weird one. I mean, Mel Tucker was a candidate initially interviewed with Michigan state. They did not initially offer him the job. They offered Luke fickle, the job first fickle, turned them down. They went back to Mel Tucker and offered him the job. He said, no. Then they offered just a massive, massive package that included doubling Mel Tucker's salary doubling his assistant coach salary pool, doubling his strength coach salary pool to the point where you would have been insane to turn it down. It just would have been crazy for him to turn it down. 
Uh, remember, Mel Tucker is from the Midwest. He played at Wisconsin. His, one of his earliest jobs was as GA at Michigan State under Nick Saban with Mark D'Antonio working there. So this was a very natural fit. He was a really good recruiter when he was at Ohio State in the early 2000s. So you can't turn that down if you're at Colorado where you have no natural ties and they are offering all this. The problem is you're going to make a lot of people mad at Colorado. And the way it went down, you know, it's understandable why they're mad. Uh, our Bruce Feldman at The Athletic talked to Mel Tucker over the weekend, and I encourage you to read the story that Bruce wrote about Mel Tucker. Very interesting stuff. He apparently used to be a door-to-door meat salesman. Who knew? And Mel kind of explained at least his side of what happened. And his thing is, you do the job you have until you don't have it anymore. And that's what he did. And, and I can understand that. As a person who changed jobs last summer, I felt that way. When I was at Sports Illustrated, I was going to be all in at Sports Illustrated until I was not at Sports Illustrated anymore. And I felt like I owed it to them. Now, it was a little different. I'd been there 11 years. I hadn't been there one year. But I felt like I owed them all the effort I could give until something changed. And then something changed. And I was at the Athletic. And then it was time to give 100% to the Athletic. So I get that from Mel Tucker. But because of the way college football works, because there is a fundraising aspect to it, there is a recruiting aspect to it, it does feel like you're making not promises to people, but you are you are talking about a future that you may not be involved in. And I think if you read Bruce's story where Mel Tucker talks about what happened, and then an interesting companion piece to that is Ross Dellinger's story at Sports Illustrated, where he talks to some of the people who were at the fundraising dinner that Mel Tucker was at the night he took the job. And they talk about how he seemed a little off, something seemed odd, and then you find out later that his people were hammering out the details of the job at the time, and then after the dinner, he accepted the job and, and then he was gone. So it's a crazy situation. I still think that the reason it got so weird is because of the timing. If Mark D'Antonio steps down in November and Michigan State can do a more conventional coaching search, I don't think this happens. I, I still think Luke Fickle might have said no. I still think Luke Fickle might have looked at it and said, you know what? I think I'm probably going to be really good at Cincinnati next year. I could potentially get the best job that is open in the next year or so and have a, a team set up that I can take over and possibly take to a national title. I get that on Fickle. But there would have been more options out there. Obviously, they probably would have still considered Mel Tucker. They probably still would have targeted Mel Tucker if Fickle had said no. But they would not have been in such a desperate situation where they had to get this guy. They, he could not say no because there were other people who just said, listen, we're good here. We just signed a class. Can't leave right now. If it had been November, people wouldn't have been feeling that way. They would have been saying, sure, I'm open to, to hear you out. And I think at that point, you don't have to give Mel Tucker that much money to make sure he says yes. But they were in a position where, from a PR standpoint, they couldn't take another no. And really, they were probably running out of people they considered qualified for the job who would be willing to move. So I think that's where Michigan State was at. And here's the deal. If Mel Tucker is successful at Michigan State and he's there for a long time, this is going to be a blip. If he's not successful, it's going to get worse 
I think Willie Taggart's a really good example of that. Willie Taggart was at Oregon for a year. He made Oregon better. He got hired by Florida State. And obviously, Florida State was a job that he'd always wanted. He grew up a Florida State fan. He's from Florida. He had no ties to Oregon. So it was a no-brainer to take the job. But then when he didn't do well at that job, it just got worse for him. And now his reputation is not very good. He did get another job. He's coaching at Florida Atlantic now. But you know, nationally, if you mention the name Willie Taggart, people are going to think a certain thing. And I think they're going to think that of Mel Tucker if he's not successful and there for a long time at Michigan State. So I think kind of the pressure's on him now uh, that he's got those big paychecks coming. He's got to make sure he makes good on them. That will be the most interesting part of all this is how will Mel Tucker be viewed by non-Colorado? Because look, they're always going to be mad at him at Colorado. That's understandable. How will he be viewed by everyone else? Because you think you look back, Nick Saban, who Mel Tucker used to work for on, on several occasions, Nick Saban very famously was the Dolphins head coach and said, I'm not going to be the Alabama coach. I think you guys know Nick Saban is currently the Alabama coach. I don't think I'm telling you, talking out of school there. We, we know he's the Alabama coach now. So, but that statement does get thrown back in his face occasionally. But not really. Now we just look at him as potentially the greatest college football coach of all time. And we don't think of the scenario that got him there. So for Mel Tucker, it's really kind of up to him at this point. Now, another thing that I'd like to see as we go into the future and find out whether Mel Tucker stays at Michigan State and is successful there. I would like to see his team and other teams kicking off differently. The XFL opened its season last weekend, and the most interesting thing was the kickoff. They've changed the rules for their kickoff, and listen, everybody's been changing their kickoff rules in the last few years. Uh, college football allows you to fair catch it, and then you can take the ball at the 25 now. The NFL moved the line, the college football moved the line before 2012, all the rule changes that were meant to make the kickoff safer have essentially just eliminated kickoff returns. They've just made it where there are more touchbacks. Well, that's not that interesting. So the XFL went into this, and Oliver Lux, the commissioner, and, and I talked to him for a story, and he said that the idea was you try to do two things. Make it safer, but also make it more interesting. And I think they succeeded. I think they managed to thread that needle. So the kicker kicks off from the opposite 30, just like he would in the NFL. The difference is he has to drop the ball between the 20 and the goal line, or he'll get penalized. The team will get penalized. Uh, the opposing team will get the ball way down the field. So you do not want to kick a touchback, and you really don't want to kick a squib kick. You want to drop the ball in a place where it can be returned. Meanwhile, you have the return team set up on its own 30-yard line. You have the kickoff coverage team set up on the 35-yard line of the return team. So they're five yards apart. Nobody can move until the return man catches the ball or the ball's been on the ground for three seconds. So what you eliminate essentially here is a bunch of guys getting a running start. And the, the coverage team gets a running start where they just fly down the field. The return team usually, those guys are backpedaling and then come sprinting forward. So you usually have two guys colliding where one of them has 
a 35, 40-yard running start, and the other one has maybe a 20-yard running start. And as fast and as big as people are in football now, those collisions are exceptionally dangerous. That's why the kickoff's the most dangerous play in football. Uh, the NFL executives have cited research from the league that says you're five times more likely to get a concussion on the kickoff. And we're not talking about the return person here. The return guy actually even in a conventional kickoff, is not usually getting smoked like that because usually the tackler has to try to break down before he tackles him. And remember, we have the halo rules so that you can't just crush a guy who's trying to fair catch a ball. So this is to protect the coverage team guys and the blockers more than it is the return guy. And what it did is it created a situation where over 90% of the kickoffs got returned on the first weekend. Now, they didn't pop any for touchdowns. Uh, we're, as I record this, they're still going through weekend number two. So we'll, we'll see how the numbers work out. But returns are happening. And when you look at it, you can see where it's possible to occasionally break a long return. And look, it should still be hard to return a kickoff for a touchdown. So I think they figured this out. I think they figured out a way to make it less boring, but also safer. So I'm hoping that the NFL and college football will really look hard at adopting this format for the kickoff because it does make the game a little more interesting, does make the game a little safer, and isn't that what we're really going for? We'll find out if anybody's listening. Uh, this is one that people have been resistant to change, but I think people have been resistant to change because really the next logical step after the rules changes they already made are eliminating kickoffs. And I think there's a certain segment that is fine with that, that you could just get rid of it, put the ball in the 25, let the offense have it. And that's that. I was in that camp for a long time, but I look at this now and, and I do think it adds a nice fun strategic element to the game. Special teams yards, I think, do make the game more fun, those hidden yards uh, where, where you can just feel position, really control the game. So I would like to see this adopted. I don't know if it will be, but I hope they at least consider it. I hope they, they're willing to be open to new ideas. One guy who has been open to new ideas is Manny Diaz at Miami. He came in replacing Mark Richt, who he had worked for as the defensive coordinator, brought in Danny Enos to run the offense, it was going to be a fairly similar offense to what Miami was running before. And Dan Enos had run a record-setting offense at Alabama the year before. Turns out, when you don't have Tua Tungavailoa throwing the passes, things don't look as good. And Miami still couldn't get it together offensively. They couldn't decide on a starting quarterback that they felt like could lead the team. Uh, they started out with Jaron Williams. They went to Nikosi Perry. They went back to Jaron Williams. And it just never really clicked for them. Well, now Miami has a new offensive coordinator, Rhett Lashley. They're going to run an up-tempo spread, which is something that some of us have been saying they need to run for a long time because when you're sitting on the greatest deposit of skill position talent in the country, how about do some things that get the ball in those guys' hands and just let them work, let them operate? That's what Miami's going to try to do this year. They've got Derek King coming in to play quarterback it's a fascinating change that probably should have happened about 10 years ago. But that's not Manny Diaz's fault. He wasn't there 10 years ago. He is there now, and he is ready to try to do it a little differently at Miami. And we'll see if that works for him. Here's Manny Diaz. 
I am in Manny Diaz's office and I got to tell you, coach, I don't know that I would ever stay inside if I were here in Coral Gables, Florida, most of the, this is unbelievable. You have the palm trees swaying. It is pretty much every stereotype about South Florida living that, that you can imagine. There's a reason why we call it paradise. It's actually funny. Remember when you were a kid and, and it was a nice day outside and your teacher would say, Hey, let's go have class outside. Oh, we'd beg the teacher to go outside. Right. We will be on campus and golly, it'd be great to be, just go watch our film on campus. We could set up a projector and just do our coaching stuff because it is so nice here. I, uh, so I got an idea for you. You could project onto the back wall of Mark Light Stadium, and this would do it. You, you could have you know film with the canes, and wouldn't just very, watch cut ups right out there. Wouldn't be very private, but uh, but yeah, we get some uh, lawn chairs, some coolers. See oh. how much work we get done actually. That, well, maybe some Mark Light shakes during the games. So that'd be that'd be perfect. That would be you can get a, do like a. Pull up a little RV back there, have a little setup for game day. I, well, you can tell you worked at Mississippi State. That's right. Throw, yeah. throw in the RV in the, in yeah. the outfield. So this is uh, this is the props to the left field lounge. Starkville right, yeah. coming out in you. Right. So uh, this is big changes here. You know, you, you've got a new offensive coordinator. You've brought in a graduate transfer quarterback. Uh, things feel different around here. And, and the question for me is you, you bring in Rhett Lashley to run the offense. And this is one that it feels like, kind of a natural fit that, that Miami maybe always should have been running a more up-tempo spread out type offense that takes advantage of all the speed you have. That's exactly right. And it's, um, it's reflective to what a lot of the, the high school talent, which, which of course Dade and Broward County, I think won six out of the eight state championships in the state of Florida this year, you know, um, I grew up in Orlando. I've heard that a few times yeah. from, uh, from, from folks in South Florida That's right. are trying to tell me that the football in central Florida is not so good. So it, it's good. It's just, it's just really, really <laughs> it's good. good. It's here. It's really good. Well, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of population, obviously, as you know, but, um, but I think it's also still about finding the right fit. And, and as you know, so much of this is right fit, right time. And I think the right fit and the right time for Rhett Lashley to come here, um, made a lot of sense. Um, his combination of what he's doing offensively now, you know, in terms of, you know, where he's been, who he's learned from, the influences he's had, and the success with different types of quarterbacks. You know, when, when Miami has had the quarterback position humming, Miami has competed for championships. Um, and so, you know, when you have a guy that's been able to develop quarterbacks, one with runners, one with non-runners, one with guys in between. I think, I think there's a lot of exciting things about that as well. Well, well that's, that's what I was curious about. Cause it, was it, you know, seeing him do this with Shane Bouchelle, you'd seen him do it with Nick Marshall. You'd seen him working with Gus Malzahn when they had Cam Newton, but Shane Bouchelle is a totally different quarterback than those guys. And that's they right. had a lot of success there. Well, and I think that's some of the influence of the air raid, you know, and, and um, when you look at offenses in the ACC, SEC, we're, you know, really east of the Mississippi. Um, we're just getting to that point where some of those, you know, air raid or Big 12 principles are really starting. You know, I mean, everybody's had some aspect of it, um, but I think that combination to what Red has done um, and what that can do to the quarterback. Because, because ultimately, when you talk about athletes and spread offense, you're trying to make an offense that's quarterback friendly where you don't have to have a first-round draft choice to score points on offense. And, and so you're looking for people who consistently perform regardless of quarterbacks coming and going and are able to move the ball and score points. And meanwhile, you go out and, and get a quarterback who's been in offenses like that. He's Derek King has played 
in four different offenses at this point, but one of those was the Kendall Bryles offense a couple years ago where he put up great numbers through the air and on the ground. What does it mean to get a guy who's kind of seen a little bit of everything offensively? Well, and and as a guy that Miami's probably never had, you know, I don't know that, you know, Miami's had some great ones come through here, but the the dual threat ability that Derek possesses. Yeah, Ken Dorsey was not making that spin no. move against Oklahoma. No, but now he didn't necessarily have to, you know. No, he was, he, was, he was throwing laser beams, that's he could, why. He could sling it, and he had some dudes to sling it to and some guys to hand it off to. Um, so it's exciting because, again, his skill set, like you mentioned, is exciting because he has been in big games. He's put up the numbers. Um, it's exciting, to be honest, because of who he is when you get to know Derek and, and see – um, how he ticks and, and how he thinks about the game. And, you know, you hear these cliches thrown out all the time, being a student of the game and being a gym rat, but he is. Um, and we obviously needed a reboot in our quarterback room, not just in terms of on-the-field production, but in terms of just the culture in that room. And to have a guy like Derek, who not only can put up 50 touchdowns, but is off the charts and all those cultural things that can – We I, I told Derek, I want him to make our team better – after he leaves not just by his on the field performance but by training our young quarterbacks on how to be a big time college football quarterback well, I talked to Rhett about that and he said that when he got the job he had a conversation with the quarterbacks who were on the roster like hey everything's a clean slate with me but I'm going to tell you this right now we're going into the portal and we're going to we're going to probably get an older quarterback that's right so you need to know that how much, though, can, can Derek King, who is here for one year and, and one year only, help guys who are younger and, and who have, you know, have years ahead of them? The best programs have they, – they're able to set a culture. Someone sets it, but they're able to set a culture where the old guys teach the young guys. Um, and you've seen great programs, and you kind of get that flywheel effect, and then somewhere it just gets lost, right? And you kind of got to get it going. And it doesn't usually happen in one year. But what it normally takes is a special group of guys – who reset the way that we work, reset the way that we handle the offseason, reset the way we go to class, go to study hall, do whatever we do. And and that makes it better for the ones to come. And, and I think that's what um, – and it's great. Co- coaches can talk about it, but the players have to lead it. And sometimes you got to get the right group of guys. Well, I don't know that there's a better example of a player-led dynasty than this one here. I'm, I'm looking right. at the, above your desk. You have a photo of Howard Schnellenberger, of Jimmy Johnson – of Dennis Erickson, of Larry Coker. Those are all coaches who won national titles. But interestingly enough, they all benefited from a system where older players taught younger players what it meant to be a cane. That's right. Yeah, this this program is why we always talk about our football alumni are almost the owners of our program because when you have five national championships won by four head coaches, this is not a – not a program where one or two transcendent coaches went in there and, and kind of defined the face of the program. Um, there have been so many great coaches that have come through here, um, and there has been a culture, as you mentioned, that is really set by the players. I mean, it's, the coaches got it started, let's, you know, in the 80s, but, but that has been a culture that the players here have fed on, and that's been – I've looked at as my main job is to try to get the guys in the locker room to buy back into what has made Miami great in the past. Well, and, and that's the thing. How, how frustrating was the end of last season? I remember watching you after the bowl game, and you're, you're trying to explain what happened, but you know, that's obviously not the culture you wanted to install. How, did, did you think, okay, I have to reboot this now? Well, there's two types of things. There's two, there's two things there to what you mentioned. There's culture and there's performance. 
um, there were a lot of ways that culturally we got what we wanted a year ago in terms of changing the way that we work, changing the way our off-season programs run, changing the way that we lift weights. Just, there were a lot of things that ticked a lot of boxes. It did not get matched by our performance, especially through the last three games. Now, so what you got to go back in and just say, okay, well, what caused the computer to crash? Right, because we had something going for for a month there. For you know, we looked like we were kind of a yeah. of a, a, a competent unit, you know. Yeah. And then the way that it went down so spectacularly, in a weird way, may turn out to be a blessing because it forced it forced to take a hard look at ourselves and not just gloss over an issue and say, well, that was just a bad day at the office um, and say, you know what, we have some fatal flaws in here that we have to go get corrected. And I, and then, and again, and to give you a point, just if the culture wasn't in place, Derek King wouldn't come. Rhett Lashley wouldn't have come. Rhett had amazing offers to go other different places. There was something here other than just, well, gosh, if Miami gets their offense going, this place can win big, which everyone knows. But there had to be something. You know, Derek wanted to come and see our guys. Is this a place where guys are working to be great, or are we just all hanging out working on right, our Right, because he dance? could have gone pretty much anywhere, too. There's no doubt. And and Quincy Roche, the defensive end, transferred from Temple. So guys guys just don't want to come here to, to hang out and and go 7-5. and five. I mean, there there is a – there is an, a notion here that there's a bunch of guys in this in, in this locker room who want to work and want to be great, and in some ways we were let down by some parts of our of our team that we tried to now get improved as quickly as we can. So, you know, it's it's interesting that you you mentioned the you know computer crashing and, and taking a hard look. You you are an analytics guy. What types of numbers were you looking at as you were taking that hard look, trying to figure out? What can we do differently? Well, we put a chart. I put a chart together um, that spanned back the past decade, and um, and number one, how many wins a year Miami's had? Because you got to get a real sense of what you're trying to fix, um, and and issues that have been a problem for multiple years uh, sometimes don't get fixed overnight. Um, so, how many times? What's what's Miami won every year? Um, what has been where, where have we ranked in the nation in terms of scoring offense? Where have we ranked in terms of yards per run, yards per pass, um, yards per play? The turn it around the same thing defensively. What's been our, our you know scoring defense, yards per run, yards per pass, yards per play? And, and I kind of made a chart and every every number that was in the top 25, I made that number green. Any number that was 60 or lower, I made it red. Anything kind of 26 to 59 was just black. That's kind of just average. Um, and just try to look for, for trends. Um, and then also did um, – recruiting rankings who the starting quarterback was in those years who the head coach was in those years because of course there's been there's been a lot of turnover um you know Miami hasn't ranked in the top 30 in scoring offense in a decade that'd be hard to believe that's impossible to believe but right. then you think back and you go okay which team would have done that but, but you're right that, that's right that, that they have not and it it feels like they've been a little bit stuck in time and obviously, you weren't here for all of that, but but it. And I know I realized there was a a notion, and you probably saw this when you were at Mississippi State, when, when Alabama and LSU were dominating and they were running pro style offenses. That that's how you won the national championship. The the spread offenses were fine when you're trying to close a talent gap, but that's how you won the, the national. But then Auburn wins, Clemson wins, and and suddenly those are winning national championships. And I, I do wonder if, if folks at Miami, and again, I know you weren't here, but took a look and said, we have all this incredible talent. 
we can run those pro style offenses and win national championships. Yeah, I, it's it's interesting you say that because again, it gets back to what what is spread. Um, you know, uh, Miami ranked very well offensively for a lot of the years that Al Golden was here. Yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of green numbers in the chart. You know, in in that in that time span. So it's not to say that they were not having success in some ways offensively. Sometimes it was be able to match it up the offense and defense in the same year. And certainly in the last four years, it's kind of worked, worked back the other, the other direction, but spread offense, you know, does that mean lying with a shotgun? Does that mean having three wide receivers on the field for four on the field? Um, we've been doing that here for a while. Right. Now, right. Um, it goes beyond that to me. It's, it's a DNA thing. It's a tempo. That's exactly how you right. use it. I, I've had this conversation with the people at LSU because they were doing things like running four receiver sets sure. and, and running out of shotgun and not huddling, but it didn't change until they changed the DNA of the offense. Right. And also tied into some other things. But, but yes, there's, there's no doubt about it. And, um, and so I think that's where, you know, look, as I, as I mentioned, there's a lot of really bad spread football teams that go fast and, and do all the spread things, and, and, they're, not, and they're not very good. Um, so it, gets, it always gets back to the same deal. you got to do it the right way. And, and the right way is about people. Um, and that's where, again, it's not just because – and, you know, it gets boring hearing coaches say this, but it's all in the details, right? And, and getting the details right is something that the kids can execute. Um, and I think that there are some things that do make it easier. You, you simplify some things. Um, and I think just the idea of, of just always being on the attack, I think that helps our guys. Speaking of people, you, you've got one particularly high-profile new employee in this organization. And, and you had this job open last year, but couldn't find the right person to fit it. And, and now you have Ed Reed coming in as the chief of staff. What, what exactly is that role that, that Ed's going to fill? One of the easiest ways I can explain the chief of staff, like you mentioned, actually, Todd Stroud was our chief of staff last year. We lost our defensive line coach. I moved Todd to our defensive line coach. And I didn't have a guy, as we're moving into the last season, I felt, you know, checked all the boxes, right? One to the year. So we knew that was a job that we wanted to fill this offseason. Ed, um, Ed's outstanding and for a, a bazillion reasons. But, you know, to me, when I look at what this job does is someone who can quite simply check the blind spots of the head coach. You know, you get pulled in this job in so many different directions. Um, you know, it may be at a practice. You see what you see. You know, coaches, we tend to get caught up in the weeds of scheme technique. You know, you could have another set of eyes there, a guy who's got great football wisdom, who not, isn't just, hey, we should run this coverage or run this route or whatever, but says, you know, hey, did you notice the way that number 22 looked at number 23 between those two plays? And understand, I know, I know number 22. I know that's not his, something's up with him today. Well, you know? and he played on such tight, cohesive defenses right. in Baltimore and obviously here at Miami. That, that's an interesting thing to me. We were talking about, you know, sometimes the, the, the culture gets lost and, and how do you get it back? He was part of a group that had to do that. That's right. After the NCAA sanctions came down, uh, he, they were not good. That's right. When, when he got to Miami, he was one of the people who helped bring it back. How much does, does having that sort of knowledge and, and just understanding of how that works help when he's talking to, to these players. Oh, it's massive because there's no doubt. Yeah, there's an assumption at Miami and a lot of the um, schools have had great success that it just, it's just always been that way and it was just always easy. And um, especially because we live in an era where, you know, kind of in, the, in the, the big three dream team era of just, you know, you just want to join the team that's winning. Um, you know, Mike Rump was our cornerbacks coach was here at the same time. Yeah. They came to Miami when Miami was five and six. Um, so Miami has 
picked itself up off the mat a few times. Ed, if you ever, Ed, Ed's came and spoke to our team a year ago at our alumni weekend during spring practice. And here's a guy that can give a speech and has every reason to talk about himself. And he could even talk about himself or a couple of other great. Ed got up there and must have mentioned 20 guys on the team that a diehard Hurricane fan would probably struggle to remember. I mean, just his ability to remember all of the guys and understanding that everybody on the team is important. This is a superstar that could have been like, hey, you know, oh yeah, that guy one time, you know, that, that walk on one time, you know, I, I remember, I forget his name, but not Ed. His, his understanding of team dynamics, you know, if you ever heard him give the speech, uh, I think he did an interview with Joe Buck and he was talking about the, the Ravens locker room and that they're not going to win until the locker room is clean. Their guys were throwing towels yep. on the floor and they had firefighters yep. coming to clean. You know, and he's like, we're not going to win a game, you know, if we can't. That's not about how to play, you know, deep halves, right? Or the right. middle third. Absolutely. Um, so you, when you have a guy who is elite like that, they can see small problems before they become big problems. Well, that's what, one of the things like following Nick Saban's teams and, and studying them, he's always said, you can train your leaders all you want. It's not them that really need the training. It's the guys who are, or on the verge of screwing up or, right. or who are young and just don't understand that's who needs to be trained. And sometimes it's better coming from current player, former player, someone that, and, and there is no, I, I'm guessing there is nobody in your locker room who does not respect Ed Reed. I, I would hope not. <laughs> they won't be there long. <laughs> His, I was going to say, it, when that guy talks, you're going to listen if you, if you care about football at all. So uh, that's, that's gotta be a nice resource for you. That's the truth. And, and, because look, the world has changed since Ed played. The world has changed in the last five years. I mean, some of the the, the pressures and demands that these young men come into, um, you know, you see what the, the the portal does, both good and bad, in college football. And there's just a lot. That we know that college football is changing right before our eyes. Doesn't matter whether you like it or not. It's it's just a different deal. And to have someone that understands and can can mentor these young men, um, like someone like an Ed can, I think is a benefit to our program for sure. So. Now that all this is in place, you know, what comes next? This is, you, I've heard you talk on signing day about you wanted to see Derek King doing things when nobody was cheering and, and leading the team and, and other older players doing the same thing. Are you getting that now? Do you feel like they, they understand what you're asking? Yeah, now comes the work. Now comes the work. But see, now comes hopping right back into the, into the, into the culture, you know, now it comes back to our off season program. Um, and you're trying slowly and surely to what, what, what I learned last year is you set a culture and you really want everyone to be a part of it. And I think an easy mistake, you know, as a coach is you, you really think you can bring everybody to what you want to do. And it's not what I want to do. It's what we, it's what Miami does, right? We have a, we have a culture here of, of competitiveness, Work ethic, toughness, that's, just, that's been around here forever, right? Um, it's not for everybody. How hard is that, though? Because I've talked to coaches about that. And there are coaches who have that I can save everybody mindset. I can, and then, but it seems like the most effective coaches are the ones that, that understand this isn't going to work for everybody. Yeah. And, and sometimes you can add by subtracting. I think that is the million dollar question. And I think you're like probably most things in life, the answer is somewhere between, you know, I, I mean, 
you have to sometimes assess, is this an immaturity issue or is this person's, you know, operating software? Right. Cause you're dealing with a re- someone's life here. That's right. And, and ultimately you want that human being to be successful. That's right. So it's hard to decide. And a lot of, and, and they want, where, where does the person's need end? where does the team's need begin? That's correct. And you want, you want to teach discipline to the ones that, that aren't disciplined because you understand where that's going to, and I know this sounds hokey, but it's, it's more true than people believe you know that this is going to last longer than their football career. Oh, it's, it's unbelievable. I was right. talking to a guy who's training for the draft yesterday and he's the first person in his family to graduate from college. And we were talking about, you know, he said, yeah, my, my kids are going to go to college now right. because I will expect that. And I, I, when you're dealing with kids that come from situations like this, I imagine you want to make sure everybody has a successful experience here that everybody gets all that out of it. But then you have to figure out where the line is of, okay, maybe they're just not going to be able to help us and uh, that because they don't want to, or they're not capable of it. And I got to help these other guys, these other, you know, six dozen guys that's right get where they need to be and that's why time talks you know and 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 you you have to be persistent um and then sooner or later if if people that don't want to get with the program yeah and maybe there's a better place for them and and uh and they can they can find that And, and and you can improve a team through subtraction i don't think there's any doubt about that but at the same time um you still want to rate you know set a standard out there and you want you know, you want the team to try to raise their level of expectation in their own performance to that standard. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see because it it seems like you've, you've got what you want in place now. Uh, Talking to you now versus this time last year, there was a lot more unknown. And was that, was that just being a first time head coach and trying to figure out where, where all that fits? But we had a lot of unknown on our roster and on our team anyway. I mean, our quarterbacks this time last year, no one knew anything not to mention who was going to start, but right. all very limited resumes in terms of what they'd actually done on a field. You know, again, we didn't know um, one of our starting offensive line this time last year was sitting in English four, <laughs> exactly. You know, in, in high school, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't even an early enrollee. That's right. And the other one was was an early enrollee, and he was two hundred forty pounds this time last year. And, um, you know, so and then yes, there's of course the unknown, and 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 so I, I do. That doesn't mean that we're. Um, you know, certainly a known quantity. And, and, you know, <laughs> look in college ball, it's taught as anything. There's a lot of variance. And, but, um, but I do think we have a better sense of our identity. I think we have a better sense of who we are. And I think our players understand that. And, and now I just look forward to seeing, you know, we have a couple more weeks of the off season and getting on the grass for spring ball and, and um, seeing what it looks like. Well, we know the weather will be nice. So get, get ready, Canes. It's going to be a little warm, but the palm trees will be swaying. Thank yeah. you, coach. My pleasure. Thanks. That's it for the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you get a chance, please subscribe to this podcast. Please rate and review. We'll take any honest criticism you have. We, we love to hear what you like, what you don't like, because we're going to give you more of what you like, less of what you don't. And please tell a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to spread the news about a podcast, and they'll love you for it. Remember, during the football season, when we break down all the games on Sunday mornings, That's when everybody uses this as a soundtrack to making breakfast. So you're actually going to help your friends make better pancakes come September. They're going to love you for that. I promise. And while we're subscribing to things, if you're not already subscribing to The Athletic, it's time. The best sports writing on the planet, the best college football writing anywhere, not just this planet, but in the entire universe. There's never been a team of college football writers put together like this one. 
my friend Bruce Feldman, Nicole Auerbach, Matt Fortuna, Stuart Mandel, Max Olson. We got great beat writers like David Ubbin on Tennessee, Manny Navarro on Miami. It's everything you want, especially if you're a fan of not just college football, but you got an NBA team, you got a favorite soccer team, you got a favorite NFL team, favorite hockey team. We cover them all. And it's the best bargain you are ever going to find. If you subscribe right now, you get 40% off your first year. Just go to theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. That's theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. We'll talk to you on Wednesday.